So turn to James chapter 5. I don't know when we started. I don't remember when we started this series, but it's been a while. But this will be the finale tonight. <clears throat> it's a wonderful thing to have somebody in your life that you can trust. Now, when somebody makes a promise to you, they fulfill the promise every time. It's becoming less and less the, the norm. Uh, so many people make promises and don't keep the promises they make. You're never quite sure if they're going to come through. It's wonderful to have anybody in your life that actually makes a promise to you and consistently comes through on that promise. That's who your God is. Your God makes promises and always comes through on the promises that he makes. If God says he's going to do something, if God says something is so, it's going to be just that way and it will always be that way. There's no hope so, no maybe so with God. It's always clear and plain when God makes a promise. And I say that all to take you back to where we were last week, uh, James chapter 5, verse 16, the great promise there at the end of that verse the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Uh, we talked last time, if we pray expectantly, if we pray passionately, if we pray righteously, God has made a promise to us. That prayer will have a great effect. There will be an effect from that prayer. And that prayer will achieve more than, than we could possibly ever imagine, uh, more than we could ever think or hope for. And that word availeth or avail, I'm sure you know, but that word means to produce or to achieve or to benefit. That's what the word avail means. So if we take any of those words and apply it to what James says here, when we pray that kind of a prayer, that prayer produces much or achieves much or benefits much. And that word much, just to cover it all, means of great quantity. So it covers all of that in great quantity, great production, great achievement, great benefit to an effectual, fervent, righteous prayer. And that's a promise from God. That is a promise from him. Therefore, that thing stands, and it's going to be just like he says it's going to be. Now, the old gospel song says, little is much when God is in it. And I believe that to be true in all sorts of ways. When you pray, you may feel like you're very little. You may see that as a very small thing you're doing. You may see prayer as just something that's uh, very minor. Uh, we know who we are. We know how we are. We know that our word, for the most part, carries very little weight. Uh, you ask something from somebody on this earth. Uh, you make requests of people, and often those things are passed by. Nobody even pays attention. And so we might see prayer as the same thing. Uh, prayer is not the same thing. We may think we have no authority, no standing. Why would my prayer make any difference whatsoever? Why would my prayer have any effect whatsoever? It is because if I pray effectually, and I pray fervently, and I pray righteously, guaranteed God is in it. <laughs> guaranteed. And so little becomes much, even in our prayer life, because God is in it. If God is in it, my puny, insignificant prayer activates the throne of heaven. And I can't conceive of that. I can't explain that. I just know that when I pray, my prayer can avail much if I pray the way James instructs me to pray. Amen. I think it's very possible. We have a really, uh, prayer is probably one of, of the least understood and probably the most misunderstood and most neglected privileges God has given to his people. And I mean that. I, I think most of God's people... And most of God's churches have yet to see what God will do if his people pray, just like James tells us to here in James chapter 5 and verse 16. I remember what Jesus Christ said back in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. He says, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Now I've heard that verse preached on and taught and so forth. And they always kind of make it a figurative thing. Uh, Jesus Christ is saying, not that you're going to move an actual mountain, but rather what he's saying is uh, a prayer with real faith can do great things. And that's true. I don't know why we can't take it literally, though. 
Why can't we say, you know what, if I pray like James tells me to, if I take all the qualities and make it like I should, why couldn't I move a literal amount with my prayer? I mean, if I'm praying to the God of heaven who made it all, has the power to do it, if my prayer activates that kind of power, why couldn't I move a mountain? I believe if I prayed the way God wanted me to and really did it, I could move this building 10 feet closer to Perry Drive. I'm not going to do it because that would be a whole mess. But I could do it if my prayer life was right. I believe that. I'm not just preaching that. I believe that. And I think the reason we don't see that is because we don't pray as James tells us to in James chapter 5 and verse 16. Uh, We are a praying church, and I praise God for that. I think God responds to this church when we pray. I think we've only scratched the surface. I don't think we've seen it all yet. And the challenge for us is to take what James says seriously, take seriously what he's telling us as far as how to pray and, and the attitude to take. The challenge is to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to take you up on this. You said if I prayed effectually, if I prayed fervently, and if I prayed righteously, you would avail much through that prayer. I'm going to put you to the test. I'm going to pray like that, and I'm going to see what happens. And if we do that and do that in faith, there will be overwhelming results to our prayers. I think we'll really see mountains move if we choose to pray that way. Malachi 3.10, I love the invitation God gives us there. He says, prove me now. (laughs) The God of heaven says, put me to the test. Whatever I've told you, just check it out and follow through on it and see what I do. I think we ought to take him up on that. As individuals, as a church, let's take him up on that. Let's prove him and see what he does. But be be prepared to be overwhelmed with the results we get uh, when we start praying in that way. Now, look at verse 17. Because James is not done yet with this, with this whole matter of prayer. He says in verse 17, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now, what he's giving us is an illustration, an example of the extent to which God will answer a prayer prayed like he tells us to in verse 16. Now, before we get to the practical side of this, I want to take a doctrinal turn here, if I could, for a moment, as we look at these two verses. Again, this book is written doctrinally to the Jews, who are going through the time of the Great Tribulation. And they're being given encouragement through this book and instruction on how to make it through that horrible time. And since they're Jews, it only makes sense that God's message to them would be illustrated by those that they are familiar with and admired from the past. And so if the Jews want to handle the horrors of the Tribulation with patience, If they want to manage that thing uh, with with patience as God tells them to, what Old Testament figure would they look to? Would they look to Job? He's the most patient man found in the Word of God. And so therefore, back in verse 15, uh, we find Job listed there. In fact, I'm sorry, verse 11, we find Job listed there. And then if they want an illustration of the effectiveness of passionate prayer, who would be the best example of that? Well, we're going to see in a few moments, uh, Elijah would be that example. However, before we go there, the fact that Elijah shows up in a book that's connected to the tribulation is really not all that surprising. And so I want to detour for just a second and look at this whole idea of why Elijah appears in the last part of the book of James. Go to Matthew chapter 17, if you would. Let's do a little Bible study here for a minute. Uh, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. And when you get there, look at verse 11. Matthew 17, 11. <clears throat> It says there, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not. But I have done unto him whatsoever they listed. 
Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So what Jesus Christ says here is Elijah is to be the forerunner of the Lord prior to his coming to this earth in his second coming and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. Now, John makes it clear in John 1.21 that he knows he's not Elias, he's not Elijah. However, had the nation of Israel accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah, John would have been Elijah in type. He would have filled that role of Elijah coming to them and announcing to them the coming of the kingdom. Now, since Israel rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they set themselves up to go through the time of the Great Tribulation. Now, the prophecy that Elijah will be the forerunner of the kingdom still stands. Uh, since the Jews rejected the first time, it's going to happen again. Now, hold your hand there, if you're keeping James there, but go back to Revelation chapter 11. Go to Revelation chapter 11. Because here you'll find the fulfillment of that in Gen uh, Revelation chapter 11. When you get there, I'll look at verse 4. Revelation chapter 11, verse 4. Now, the middle of the book of Revelation is the middle of the tribulation. That's what this book, the book of Revelation is basically all about, is a tribulation time. So you look at verse 11, verse 4, it says, uh, chapter 11, verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. If any man hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut up heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So the Bible tells us at the, when the tribulation is in full force, and before the Antichrist comes, these two witnesses are going to show up. And the Bible identifies for us who these two witnesses are going to be. Who was it, was it in Israel's history that turned water to blood and brought plagues onto the earth? Who was that? That was Moses. So first witness we know is Moses based upon that. And then who in Israel's history prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain? That was Elijah. So we know the two witnesses found here in Revelation, in spite of all the debate that goes on with that, God makes it very clear, I think, the two witnesses in the tribulation are Moses and Elijah. So here is Elijah coming along and announcing Jesus Christ and announcing that the plan that God has as far as bringing this kingdom down, just like Jesus Christ said he would. Remember back to the Mount of Transfiguration. That was a picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That was what Jesus was showing them, what it was going to look like when he brought his kingdom. So Jesus Christ appears on that mountain. Who appears with him? Moses and Elijah. <laughs> The two witnesses appear there. Here we go again. Jesus Christ showing what it's going to look like when the kingdom comes. Who does he bring along with him? Moses and Elijah. Those two fellows are, are the two witnesses. So here we have Elijah in the last book, chapter of the book of James, a book that is all about the 12 tribes going through the tribulation. And who do we find showing up? We find Elijah showing up. Folks, don't let anybody ever tell you that book in your lap is written by people and is just like any other religious book. It is not. That book fits together like a glove. It may have been written by 40 men over the span of 1,500 years, but there was a divine author behind that that kept that thing all together and weaved his plan all the way through that book, even so much that here in the book of James, as you have a book talking about the tribulation time, we find Elijah, one of the witnesses, showing up in that book. God put things in that book right where he wanted them to be, and everything there is what God wanted to be in that word. That's why we don't touch it. We just leave it alone. Now, practically... What Elijah gives us is an example of a righteous man praying an effectual, fervent prayer. 
And so I'm going to take you back to 1 Kings to see how this, what the actual uh, event was. Go back to 1 Kings, if you would. 1 Kings chapter 17. Get to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to look at verse, uh, verse 1. This Bible still is not broken in yet. It's hard to get to the places. There we go. Okay. 1 Kings 17, 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gil- Gilead, uh, Gilead, rather, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. So now we don't have the actual prayer here. Uh, Elijah apparently already did his praying, and he tells Abraham, uh, uh, Ahab rather, that there's not going to be rain for three and a half years. Now go to the, uh, chapter 18. Flip over a page or two. Go to chapter 18 and look at verse 41. 1841. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth, and put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, Go up now, uh, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked, and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot, and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So God shut the rain off by Elijah's word, and God turned the rain back on by Elijah's word. And this time in chapter 18, we see the fervent prayer, the effectual prayer that Elijah made in order to make that happen. The prayer that we mentioned a minute ago, that prayer is the kind of prayer that can move mountains, is the kind of prayer that can create rain and stop rain. That's the kind of praying we're talking about. Uh, when you look at a man like Elijah and some of these other Old Testament prophets, uh, we get this idea that these are great saints of God, and they are, uh, that they are, are super spiritual, uh, that they have it all together. Uh, we have that same feeling sometimes with contemporary saints, those who are like giants in the faith and so forth. We feel like those are, are extra special people with uh, the upper echelon of the faith and have super spiritual kind of qualities to them. And therefore, God can use them in ways he can't use us because they're on a different level, a different tier. And to make sure we never get that impression, hold your hand there in 1 Kings. We're coming back there. But go to James again. Go to James chapter 5 and verse uh, 17 again. Look at what the first part of verse 17 says. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Now notice that. He makes a, makes a very clear point to say, this man Elijah is just like you and me. <laughs> He has the same issues with his flesh, just like you and I do. He's subject to the same passions of the flesh, just like you and I are. He is tempted by the flesh, just like you and I are tempted by the flesh. And Elijah's flesh worked hard on him and sometimes got the best of him. Back to 1 Kings again. Go to chapter 19 now and look at verse 1. It says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than any of my father I am not better than my father's. Uh, Elijah has been battling the king for a long time. It's been the, the main focus of his ministry is battling King Ahab. He becomes a target of the king because what he did with the prophets of Baal. And the king sees him, I find this fascinating, the king sees him as the, the reason for all the problems that Israel's having is all because of Elijah. I find it fascinating because things don't change in centuries. I find it fascinating that today, all the problems we're having in this nation, all the problems we're having in this world are being blamed on you and me. <laughs> being blamed on Christians. Uh, it's amazing how unregenerate people can always find somebody to scapegoat, somebody to blame when things go wrong, and typically it's believers they find to blame. If you just get with the program, things will go better. Because you won't get with the program, that's why we have all these problems. Uh, Ahab did the exact same thing. He said Elijah was the whole problem. That's why I'm having all these difficulties. So, because of the stress that Elijah was feeling, because of constantly confronting the king and consistently being uh, the target of all the, the goes on, that's finally gotten to Elijah. And so Elijah, instead of resting in the strength of the Lord that God would provide to him, we find him under the juniper tree, feeling far sorry for himself and wishing God would just kill him. Now, I don't know about you. I've been under the juniper tree a few times myself. <laughs> I'll just confess that to you. Uh, there have been times when I felt like I was doing what God wanted me to do, and yet instead of experience, uh, experiencing the joy of the work, I was feeling attacked by others around me. I you know, felt like the world was on my shoulders and so forth. And now, I've never asked God to kill me, but, but, but I have spent some time under that tree saying, Lord, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth all the trouble. It's just not worth all the difficulty. And I spent some time under that tree whining and complaining to God, wondering why I do what I do and all the rest of it. Now, if you've ever had a juniper tree experience, you're in great company <laughs> because Elijah had one too. Elijah, the man who can stop rain and start rain again, was under the juniper tree feeling sorry for himself. In fact, he was the originator of the juniper tree experience. Now, what did God do with this whiny, pathetic prophet? <laughs> he used this whiny, pathetic prophet to stop rain over Israel for three and a half years. He used this whiny, pathetic prophet to restart the rain when it was time to do so. What's the message there? The message there is, as amazing as it is, if God can use the prayers of a whiny man like Elijah, whose flesh got the best of him, who had passions just like you and I do, he can use our prayers in the same way. You can pray like Elijah. I can pray like Elijah. I can have the same effect on God as Elijah did in his prayers. That's an amazing thought. Uh, and we may try to pass this off as some Old Testament miracle that no longer happens today. Well, I'll tell you what. We've got a perfect example of that. that Matt, Matt has told you all about it. VBS last summer, God used your prayers to stop rain. If you were praying for vacation Bible school last year, Matt's told you the story of watching that radar as a storm came right at that field and then split off in both directions and that field stayed dry. You know why that happened, folks? Because some fervent prayer was going up for that time. That's why. You experience what Elijah experienced as well. You experience God stopping rain for you. You say it can't happen? It happened. It happened. That's how God works. That's how God works. Uh, God will divide storm clouds. God will move mountains. And he'll do it with people like you and I. Because 
we who have like passions can still effectively and fervently and righteously pray, and that prayer will avail much. And again, I say this to myself. I say this to you as well. Most believers, prayer is the most powerful and least used resource God has made available to us. We do all sorts of things, but prayer kind of takes a back seat to it all. We may not understand it all. We might not have a completely clear idea of how it all works. Uh, that must not dictate to us that we, that, that we don't use prayer when, when, as, as God has uh, instructed us to do. I don't understand how some power plant on the Ohio River makes it possible for me to have tea in the morning. I have no idea how that all works. But I make my tea every morning just like I would any other day. And it always works the same way. Just because I don't understand something doesn't mean I don't use it. <laughs> Folks, you may not understand everything about prayer. I don't understand everything about prayer. God says, send up an effectual, fervent prayer. Send up a righteous prayer, and I'll avail much with that prayer. That's all I need to know. Don't need to understand the whole process. That's all I need to know. I may not understand it, uh, but all I know is this, folks. My prayers unlock the power of heaven. And so what I say to myself is, and so many times with the Word of God and with how God works, stop trying to understand it. Stop trying to make sense of it from your uh, human understanding. And just do what God told you to do. (laughs) Just do it. Take God up in his offer. Pray effectually. Pray fervently. Pray righteously. And prove God. And based on the promise he's given us here in James, if we do that individually, if we do that corporately, God will stop and start reigning for you. We can move mountains if we use prayer in the way God has instructed us to do it. And by the way, these are the reasons we call this whole series the gospel in action. Uh, Saved people are not supposed to sit in glory in the salvation they've been given and do nothing with what God has given to them. We're supposed to take God's salvation and act on it. Now, we might see prayer as sort of a passive kind of a thing, not an active kind of a thing. I want to read your verse in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, this says this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Uh, Do you hear what he said there? He says Epaphras is laboring for you fervently in prayers, laboring in prayer. Prayer is not a passive process, folks. Prayer is an active process. Prayer is not us laying on our bed at night and praying before we go to sleep. That's part of it for sure. But prayer also involves a real work. Real prayer is not letting go of God until God responds. Holding on until God says yes, or God says no, or God says something. Holding on until you get an answer of some type. Real prayer is seeing a need and and pursuing God on behalf of that need and praying until that need is met one way or the other. Prayer is, is laboring. And prayer is laboring, here's our word again, laboring fervently. Prayer is not something you do to pass the time, something you do when all else fails. Prayer is a foundational part of putting the gospel into action. If you want your walk to be right, you better be praying and praying fervently and praying passionately and praying righteously. Otherwise, uh, you're missing a bit great part of what God wants you to do, and you're missing a great part of how God can use you in the walk he's given you to walk. All these things require strong, passionate, fervent prayer. And so here James does. He lays out for us how to live the gospel before others, and he says, be a person of prayer. Be a person of prayer. Now, before we close, one other thing he tells us about, and I want you to look at verse uh, 19. One other thing he wants us to know as he closes this book. Brethren, if any of you be, I'm sorry, let's start over. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth 
and one convert him. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now, we've seen these verses in James, many of these verses in James, difficult to understand, difficult to apply because of such a strong doctrinal application to the tribulation in the book of James. And so we struggle with some of these verses to try and keep the doctrinal and practical application separate. As we wrap up the book of James, we come to two verses that present some of the most difficult problems, challenges rather, in interpreting the word of God in these two verses. Because these verses really have a difficult application to this age unless we understand what James is saying to us. So what I'd like to do is start doctrinally first. Let's look at these verses from the doctrinal point of view, and then we'll look at the practical application as well. Look at the first word, brethren. Now, who are these brethren? Well, uh, are, they bro- are they brothers and sisters in Christ or in the church age? Well, I'm hoping as we wrap up this book, you know that that's not the case. <laughs> Hope by now you realize, doctrinally, what he's, who he's talking to are the brethren, those who are Jews, fellow Jews, going through the tribulation time together. So doctrinally, uh, this is one Jew responded to another Jew as they're struggling through the tribulation. And the particular concern presented here is that some Jewish brother or sister may err from the truth as they walk through this time. So as we are to live by the truth in this age, so also the tribulation people are to live by the truth as well. Uh, Now we understand in the tribulation, the principles of truth they operate by are different than than the principles of truth that we operate by here in the church age. God has set a different standard for them. But the fact is, folks, no matter what age you're in, God's truth is at the foundation of it. God's truth is at the foundation. And no matter what period we're in, God's truth is always there. And God's truth is always a standard by which people are to live. Uh, David mentioned here a minute ago about these young people who are so uh, struggling. So you know why they're struggling? Because nobody's telling them the truth. <laughs> That's why they're struggling. Uh, there is an absolute standard of truth. And if you abide by that standard, all of life falls into place. It just makes sense. But if you don't, if you have a hundred different truths, which is what this society is trying to present today, then no wonder there's confusion because everybody says they're telling the truth. And all these things contradict each other. How are they to know what to believe? That's why God gave us a book. And that's why God gave us a book that is absolute. And that's why God gave us a book that doesn't change. You've got a standard of absolute truth before you tonight. And what those young people need to hear and what our goal is in, in the ministry we do is get them to hear the truth that's found in the word of God. That what makes the difference. That will make all the difference. So here we have somebody in the tribulation time, a Jewish brother or sister, and they wander from the truth that God has given to them. Uh, maybe their uh, faith in Jesus Christ has drifted. Maybe they aren't following his commandments like they're required to. Maybe they're becoming desperate because of the persecution and they're giving thought to maybe uh, taking the mark of the beast and, and just making life easier. However they're doing it, they're wandering from the truth and wandering away from the truth that God has given to them. What is a brother called to do in that time on behalf of that wanderer? Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him. The idea is a believer is to convert that one who is struggling. That word convert in its very simplest form means to change. You've heard of a power converter. That's a device that takes a certain electrical current and converts it into a different electrical current. It changes the current of of that thing going in. When you were converted to Jesus Christ, you changed directions. You went 180 degrees difference. Jesus Christ said in John 12, 39, Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, 
that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted that I should heal them. What Isaiah told them, what Jesus Christ is quoting to them, is conversion occurs when a person's vision is changed and when a person's understanding is changed. A change has to occur for a person to be converted. That is implied in the entire word. A person looks at the word of God and it changes the way they think about things. That's why you use the word of God to lead somebody to Jesus Christ, because that book changes their mind about things. It changes their mind about themselves and about their purpose in life and what Jesus Christ has done for them. All that is part of the conversion that occurs when a person trusts Jesus Christ as Savior. So this brother of this erring individual is to do what they can to change the direction of that person, that one who is in error, convert them to a different direction. Now, up to this point, the doctrinal and the practical uh, applications are very similar. We're called to do the same thing. Hold your hand there in James. Go back to the book of Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 6. And you'll see that uh, up to this point, what James is saying applies to you and I in the church age as well. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, just look at verse 1. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now, you may not know this, but I think it's good for us to point it out. One of our obligations to each other is to help each other when we see somebody going down the wrong path. When we see somebody struggling in some sort of way, uh, we need to let them know about that. And through the word of God and through kindness, uh, let them know they're going down the wrong path. Now, that implies two things. It implies, first of all, that you're walking the right path. (laughs) You can't help anybody get on the right path if you're not on the right path yourself. Number two, it also implies that you know your scripture well enough to be able to help that person get back on the right path if they're on the wrong path. But again, that is what we're supposed to do. That is what we're called to. That's not an option. Notice again what Paul says there. He says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, restore him. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Restore him. Getting back on track again. Getting back to where it needs to be. Uh, if we see folks drifting into doctrinal error in some way, we are to let them know about that and at least help them best we can to get them back on track. Now go back to James again and look at verse 20. So again, up to this point, what James tells us in verse 19 is required of believers in this age as well. Verse 20 says, let him know, let this one that you're converting, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. Now we have a problem. Now we have a problem. Because what that says is, uh, if you take it literally, which we're going to, uh, no believer in this age, uh, gets an, who gets another believer on the right track, saves that soul from death. If they're a believer, they soul is already saved from death. <laughs> but that is the exact process in the tribulation time. In the tribulation, a person on the wrong path has put themselves on the path to hell with that decision just as it was, under, uh, it was true under the law in the Old Testament. I want to take you back to a very familiar passage in the book of Ezekiel. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 3. I'm sure you've read this many times, but I'd like to uh, use it in uh, reference to what we're talking about here in the book of James. So go to Ezekiel chapter 3. Look at verse 17. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17. 
He says, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest uh, to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done, look at it, his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he, hath, he shall surely live, because he is warned, also thou hast delivered thy soul. Now, I'm not so much concerned about the, the impact on the watchman. I'm more interested in what happened to the wicked and the righteous, depending upon the decision that they make. Verse 20 tells us, if a righteous person turns from their sin, uh, turns, uh, turns the sin from the righteousness and turns to sin and dies in that sin, look at it, it says that righteousness is forgotten. They are no longer considered righteous. Again, this is Old Testament doctrine, folks, not New Testament doctrine. If that person turns from their sin, uh, turns to sin, rather, uh, their righteousness is forgotten. In verse 19, it tells us if the wicked person doesn't turn from their wickedness, they also die in their sin. So in both cases, the person has been warned, or the brothers come alongside and told them what they need to do, and they chose to continue on the sinful path, what happens is they die in their sin. Well, in the Old Testament, what happens to anybody who dies in their sin? <laughs> they go to hell. Their soul is lost because they died in their sin. Any person who dies in their sin goes to hell. That soul dies just as James says it does, and so because of the fact they didn't turn from weren't converted and turned from their way and turned to the way God wanted them to go. So that person in the tribulation time must maintain their faith in Jesus Christ and must keep the commandments of Jesus Christ till the very end. If they begin walking the wrong path, uh, what is supposed to happen there is some brother is to come along and help get them back on the path again. And if they are converted, they're back on the right path. And if they die, their soul is saved. But if they don't listen to that brother, if they are not converted, if they don't change their ways, they die in their sin. And their soul goes to hell as a result. That's what happens during the tribulation time, just like is what happened in the time of the Old Testament. It's the exact same thing. Now go back to James one more time. Notice also it says, uh, that shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. In other words, because they were converted, they're now on the right path. Any sins that they were going to commit while they're walking that wrong path don't occur. Therefore, those sins are hidden. They never occur. And therefore, nobody ever knows about them because they never happened. And that person's salvation is safe as a result. Now, do you see why these verses can't apply to us doctrinally? They can't apply to us doctrinally because of the biblical doctrine that applies to the church age. Once you're born, you can't get unborn. <laughs> Once you're born into the family of God, you're a child of God, and God never rescinds that. He never turns his back on that. So therefore, no matter how you die, you're going to go to heaven. Now, you may get, go kicking and screaming, and the judgment seat of Christ may be a difficult time for you, uh, more difficult than it will be for some others. But the fact is, uh, you'll get to heaven even if you die not walking with the Lord like you should. Uh, so those verses do not apply to us doctrinally because no soul in this age who knows Jesus Christ as Savior will die and their soul will die as well. Your soul is safe forever because God has captured it in the body of Jesus Christ. 
So, no matter what sinful state you die in as a believer, those sins aren't held against you as far as your eternal destiny is concerned. Uh, no sin, past, present, or future is held against you because Jesus Christ paid for all of them the minute you trusted him to be your Savior. Now, here's the practical application of verse 20. So, this now we're going to try to make application of this verse as difficult as it might be. When I do what I'm instructed to do in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, when I find that person who needs to be restored and I restore them, that person who is overtaken in a fault, when I restore them back to the right walk again, what's the result? Well, all sin brings death. All sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. So a believer who persists in sin or in a sinful lifestyle is going to kill something in the process. <laughs> Something's going to die. Uh, they'll kill their testimony. Uh, they'll kill their ministry. They'll kill their influence over other believers. Something dies when a believer stays in their sin. Just remember that, folks. That's something to kind of hold on to. You're killing something every time you persist in sin. Uh, sin brings death. So when a believer restores that brother, when the brother changes his ways and takes a different path, the death that would occur, have occurred doesn't occur. Because they are not walking in sin anymore, their, their testimony is restored, their influence over others is restored, everything comes back to normal when the sin is taken care of. And also, when a brother's path is changed, they leave that sinful lifestyle behind. And when they do that, a multitude of sins is hidden as a result. Same application I mentioned to you a minute ago with the one in the, in the tribulation. When a believer in this age gets themselves back on track, any sin they might have committed on the wrong path is, no, is not committed. And therefore, because those sins aren't committed, the damage that might have been done is not done uh, because they no longer persist in that lifestyle and on that sinful path. Therefore, the harm to the body of Christ or the harm to the name of Christ that might have occurred doesn't occur because they're back on track again. So when I restore a believer, when I come alongside a brother or sister and do what I need to do to help them back on, the track, on track again, not only do I provide a benefit to the believer himself because their path has now changed, I also provide a benefit to the body of Christ. I provide a benefit to the cause of Christ as a result. So I find it fascinating in, in the practical application. Here we are wrapping up the book of James, the, the book that we have called The Gospel in Action, and it ends by telling us how we need to treat each other. Isn't that interesting? God cares a lot about that, folks. Just so you know, God cares a lot about how we treat each other. God cares a lot about how we respond and react to each other. Uh, we are to be... Jesus Christ on this earth. And we're to live for him here and live as he would if he were here. So the body of Christ, this local body, the general body of Christ, exists for many, many reasons, but it does not exist so we can tear down or criticize or devour each other. That's not why the body of Christ exists. That's why how a lot of people use it. That's not how it exists. Now listen to me. We are all on this journey together, walking alongside each other. And we are all subject to the same temptations. We're all subject to getting off track once in a while. We all are all subject to falling into sin. And my role for you is to help that keep that from happening. And your role for me is to help keep that from happening to me. That's how it's supposed to work. We are in this body together, helping each other and restoring each other when we see a brother or a sister getting off track. My role in your life is to give you the support and the help that you need when you're struggling. And your role in my life is to give me the help and support that I need when I'm struggling. Rather than condemn a believer or criticize a fellow believer who's struggling, we're called upon to restore them. I've seen so much of it in the church. And fortunately, I haven't seen a whole lot of it in this church, outside of this church, but not in the body itself. 
where somebody gets on the wrong path and people start whispering about them and talking about them and talking about how bad they're doing and what awful things they're committing, all that stuff. I don't find that anywhere in Scripture. What I find in Scripture is when I see somebody struggling, I come alongside them and restore them if I can. If you think I'm on the wrong path, your role is not to go home or to get on, on, on Facebook or on wherever else you go and start talking about the path I'm on. That's not what you're called to do. You're called instead to, hey, Sabaka, you're on the wrong path. I think there's something going on here we need to talk about. That's what believers do for each other. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. We do everything we possibly can to get that person to change their direction and get them back on track. And if we will do that, the name of Jesus Christ is protected and we demonstrate his love to all those around us and we show in maybe the greatest way possible the gospel in action. That's what it's all about. Folks, we are living the gospel to people around us. Lost and saved alike. And James gives us all the principles that we need to make that happen. Praise God for the book of James. I'll tell you, it's a great, great book. (laughs) All right, stand if you would, and we'll be dismissed.